Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. Welcome to the Visual Workplace, to Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show about, well, about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, and I find it so interesting. We look at how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living dynamic landscape of work, into the operational landscape through visual devices, visual systems, how to install the language of our current level of operational excellence, even if we are not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be. When we install that level through visual devices, that information, through visual devices and visual systems, we make that level concrete and specific, and we can literally, literally see how we think. It's physical. And we can predict how that thinking will function because we've captured it, we've embedded it into the operational landscape. That's what visuality does. And why do we bother? Well, for three big reasons. The first is we get amazing bottom line results in terms of improved safety, lowered risk, zero risk, better quality, more aligned delivery time, shrinking costs, 15 to 30% increase in productivity. We see that all the time. And two, we see splendid cultural alignment. The workforce, all levels of the workforce, is spirited and engaged and contributing and very well informed because they've made it so. And three, we enjoy ourselves at work. Oh, isn't that terrific? (laughs) We enjoy ourselves at work. And the enterprise becomes increasingly self-explaining, self-regulating, fluid, self-aware, conscious, intelligent. It's an intelligent visual enterprise, to which I say a wonderful, wonderful. So welcome. Welcome. Last week, we're in the we're at the beginning of a series. Last week we spoke about visuality and cultural transformation. This was the conversation that launched the new series, which I call the eye of the leader. This is the pronoun I, not the seeing eye, although that would be appropriate too. The eye of the leader, the principles and practices of visual leadership. And before I jump in, we have a packed agenda today. We've got, I want to want to cover certain points that are important to me. Oops. Before we jump in, uh, I want to remind you that you can send your comments and your pictures and your stories and your questions to radio at visualworkplace.com. I welcome them. They will find their way to me, your emails, and I promise to answer them, each and every one of them. Secondly, please visit our website, visualworkplace.com, to get my books. There are seven of them. I think three of them are currently posted The others are on their way, sort of making their way. They have been published. I have seven books, yes. (laughs) I'm currently working on 
uh, the eighth book, which is The Eye of the Leader, The Principles and Practices of Visual Leadership. So there'll be more, and this will be encapsulated, but it's going to take a good year. And you can also get a lot of free information, our articles, over 100 of them, our podcasts at visualworkplace.com. We'll be putting up a video gallery, I think, in about a month or so. The plans just went in last week. And I wanted to also tell you, oh, yes, our products and services. You can read all about them and our model for visuality. There's a lot of good stuff on the website. I hope you visit us, visualworkplace.com. So let me begin on this continuing topic. It will take us several shows. I wouldn't be surprised if it takes five or six to cover this topic sufficiently for you to say, I get it, and maybe even I want it. Visual leadership, the principles and practices. So, you know, I think you're growing used to me. I make declarations and I tell stories. I've been in this field for over 35 years and I have to say that I do have opinions and I have cherished insights and a lot of experience, a lot of experience in conversions, visual conversions, a lot of experience with lean a lot of experience with cultural conversions as well. And I'm a a proponent of visuality. I am um, deeply involved, and I've been developing developing and codifying the field now for about all of that time, 35 years plus, and it has been a gift in my life. And my focus on leadership came a little bit later came about 20 years ago after I had done a lot of work on the operator level because my 5S kept failing and I was determined to find a way to get operators involved in visuality and that's when I developed the methodology that you may be familiar with, work that makes sense. I wrote a really beautiful book on that, lots and lots of pictures, work that makes sense, operator-led visuality. I began to work on the supervisory level management level and eventually in the boardroom with general managers and CEOs and certainly plant managers. And I asked myself 20 years back, what has visuality to do with leadership? At first glance, it seems abstract. It seems uh, personality or person-driven. It doesn't seem like a methodology or a paradigm of thinking and seeing. And then I noticed that it was. And that's what my work in leadership has been. And it has been just extraordinarily satisfying. Compelling natural leaders are rare in any field, whether manufacturing, healthcare, government, construction, anywhere. And we have this kind of bias that we believe that leaders have to have kind of charismatic personalities and a very expensive business school education. And then a lot of um, invisible gifts that make them effective. This is the whole myth around leadership and about being a great leader. I don't believe that. I believe that people can become leaders by giving them 
sufficient structure, line of sight, information, and a very, very well understood role definition. I want to get us to the point, probably the next show, where we'll be discussing the exact specifications for the role of executive leader and the role of other types of leaders. But through it, you will hear me say, to succeed, leaders in the making must develop a fresh understanding of their roles and build new skills that will help them that will help them as part of their daily activity, but also as part of their role as leaders. We need to grow. Organizations need to grow effective leaders. And that's exactly what the principles and practices of visual leadership are designed to do. In my experience, in my opinion, and in my practice. Okay? I want to make a distinction between executive leadership and everything else. Executive leadership, your CEOs, GMs, vice presidents on the corporate level, they are responsible for the corporate intent, finding, focusing, and driving strategic growth through tactical improvement, the corporate intent. Other leaders, supervisors and managers, for example, are responsible for implementing that corporate intent. These are two different jobs, each of great importance, and each of them need to have an understanding, slightly different understanding of what effective leadership means and how to achieve it. The shorthand for executive leadership, I say this way. The executive leader needs to learn how to say yes to the few and wait to the many. It is a question of identity. And for supervisors and managers, maybe a shorthand of saying that is they need to move from logistical warriors to officers, warriors, not warriors. Okay? And, you know, there's also a very important leadership identification for operators themselves, but they become self-leaders, leaders of their own thinking and leaders of the reconfiguration of their locus of control, leaders of improvement. So I want to tell some stories to anchor this, stories that have been very, very important in my life, stories and images. They'll be sprinkled throughout this. This particular story of leadership happened a number of decades ago when I was asked to work with a division of TVS Sundaram Clayton, um, one of the major manufacturing conglomerates in India. They had sites in Madras and Bangalore. Now they have something like 30,000 employees in 21 different divisions. At the time, they were just slightly smaller, but equally as important. I was asked to work in Bangalore. It's a magnificent city. It's a, a kind of India's Silicon Valley, but at that time, not so much. This was fortunate to be in Bangalore for a number of reasons. For one thing, I got to stay at the Windsor Manor, which was an exact brick-by-brick replica of a manor in the UK, and it was exquisite. 
you know, come on over sometime and I'll show you a ream of photograph with photographs with uh, memories of food and my suite and the main staircase and the food and the food. <laughs> it was fantastic in the pool. And fortunate, it was fortunate to be in Bangalore as well because the Srinivasan family lived there. And the Srinivasan family owned, had founded um, the TVS Sundaram Clayton conglomerate. The senior was one of four brothers, and they they put together this, what was just a fledgling uh, manufacturing group, and then grew into this um, megamyth. The head, I also got time to spend, I was in Bangalore, and I got to spend time with the older brother, the head of the family, when the patriarch, TVS Srinivasan, stepped down, Venu Srinivasan, a magnificent leader and thinker. I worked at nearby factories, and I found it all riveting. But it was only later that the real greater treasures began to surface. They knew, as a result, to uh, to a great extent, as a result of my work uh, in the, I guess that was at the end of the 1980s, Vainu wanted to know more about Japan and more about the Japanese approach and more about TQM, and he made a number of study tours to Japan, which is not so far from India. He visited JMA and JUICE, which is the home of the Deming Prize. He discovered a great deal, the X-type matrix, and the deep and abiding respect for people that the best Japanese companies had absorbed and cultivated and represented and demonstrated with their every breath. He was moved, he was excited, he was determined, he was inspired. <laughs> the short of it was Veno had decided to challenge for the Deming Prize. And to that point, I believe there were only two companies outside of Japan that had received the prize. One of them was in the United States, Florida Power and Light. That year was 1989. So Veno had decided this, and I heard this story that I'm going to now share with you through a colleague of Venu. I have not verified this with Venu, but it's a it's fantastic. It sounds just like him. And Venu was saying to himself, "What? How shall I do this? How shall I go about this? This deep, deep change, this huge change in my company, in the culture of my company, with the managers that I now have in place, because all of the managers, all of the engineers were Brahmin. Brahmin is the." very high caste um, caste in India and um, Brahmin priests you may have heard of. Well, they have also turned into engineers and managers and Venu had a lot of them and Venu knew what the uh, restraints were, the constraints were around equality in a caste system, which India was still very much a, pro- a proponent of. And happy to be so. There was a segmentation of those who were higher and those who were lower. And the very lowest, of course, were the folks who cleaned the toilets. The the, the folks who cleaned, period. And I remember being at the factory 
And this very nice uh, person would come in to clean. I thought he was absolutely lovely, but he was treated in, in a way that was, while not disrespectful, clearly different than friendly and welcoming and, um, and respectful. It wasn't disrespectful, but it definitely had flavors around it that were noticeable to me as a Westerner, but taken for granted there. And he thought and he thought and he said, what can I do to make short work of this transformation? I need to get started, but I don't know how to convince these men, they were all men, these men about this new way. And I want to do it in a quick way. I want to get their measure quickly. He wanted them to align with his purpose, with his intent And he came upon this brilliant scheme. So he said to all of his managers and engineers, uh, we're going to meet on Saturday, all of his top managers and top, uh, top staff. We're going to meet on Saturday. Please come out to the plant and please bring some old clothes. You can come in a suit, but I'm going to be asking you to change later on. We're going to be doing something together. And they did. The whole crew showed up on Saturday And he said to them, it was like 10 minutes after 8, on Saturday morning, he said, okay, I want you to go and uh, change into your old clothes and come back. Well, what are we going to do, sir, in our old clothes, asked one of the Brahmins. And he said, we're going to clean the toilets. (laughs) That's what he said. He said, we're going to clean the toilets. I'll see you in about 10 minutes. Well, of course, there was an uproar. What do you mean, clean the toilets? You can't possibly mean that. We're Brahmins. This is against the law. It's against God's law. It's against everything that our society is about. Went the discussion, the one-sided discussion of the Brahmins saying, no, no, no. And he said, well, that's what we're going to do. We're in the process of we're going to challenge for the Deming Prize, and this is our first step. I'm certain that you're interested in what I'm interested in, and I'm certain that you want to get on board, and I'm certain that you will do whatever needs to be done for us to challenge this uh, for this very important uh, prize. It was a prize at the time the language was TQM, Total Quality Management. Well, of course, many, many of the men in that room, of the Brahmins, were horrified, and many of them left on the spot. Venu had made it very clear, this is not a choice, this is not an option, this is what we're going to do, and if you don't want to do it, I'm afraid you'll have no other choice but to not be with us any longer. I'm not going to, I'm not terminating you, it will be your choice, not mine. I would never presume to let you go, you're a valuable member of my team. But this is our next next task together, and we are going to do it, and we're going to do it today, and we are going to do it together. 80% of his staff left. 80% of the staff simply left the building not to return. Yes, they were outraged. Yes, they were grumbling. And yes, they left. And I thought to myself when I heard this story, Man, that not only took courage, but it was so smart. Why fight it? Just give people the choice and let them show 
whether or not they are in the mood to change, the mood to be transformed. Because if they're not willing to change, let's get it over with now. How are they going to help the company to change? So let's get this discussion ended. And he did. It's fantastic. And this, for me, was a major, major piece of the leadership that Vano had exhibited for as long as I knew him and beyond. And in fact, it was quite a few years later, but in 1998, the Sundaram Clayton Organization won the Deming Prize, the first Indian company to win the Deming Prize and the fourth non-Japanese company to receive the prize in the 50-year history of the Deming Prize. Huh, quite amazing, quite amazing. A few years before that, moving on to a next point, in 1989, as I mentioned, Florida Power and Light was the first company, overseas company, to ever win the Deming Prize. And there were a lot of high-flown speeches in the aftermath, and deservedly so. It was a big deal. But the head of Florida Power and Light said something that I, I see as very much a part of our conversation about leadership and about this change in leadership that I call visual leadership. This is one of the fundamental building blocks. And it was the definition of leadership that the CEO, Charles Turner, spoke of. This is like a plaque that I have in my office. He said this, the biggest obstacle to improving productivity is management's inability to recognize that it must lead the company out of its productivity problems, not manage it out. There is a great deal of difference Leading means setting the vision, inspiring others by example, and following up to see that the vision is met. Do not confuse managing with leading, he says. Yes, they need each other, says I, but they are not the same thing. They each have a central role to play, but the sequence matters. Begin with managing, and you will find it very hard to introduce the leader mindset. Begin with leadership, and managing can and will and must align with it and become a powerful support. Essentially, this was the scenario that Venu set up with his direct managers. He said, we're going to shift now. We're actually going to become leaders. That means that we need to strike a direction, a strategic direction, and follow it, publish that, speak of it, inspire others by example, and check to make sure this vision is met. Our managing days are over. He basically was saying, we're going to start winning. Managing, I like to say, is a peacetime activity. And its behaviors align with that. We keep things going. We stay on an even keel. We monitor. We track. We check. And then we check again. Management is about stabilization. Leadership is about growth. Management creates short-term safety, safety 
and a knowable future, knowable from here. Leadership creates short-term risk and future expansion growth. I, when I went to school, I dreamt of becoming a linguist. I was uh, brought up in New Jersey. But I didn't know how to get there from Long Branch, New Jersey, and so I became a Latin teacher instead. I love the idea of language and of, of these particles of meaning that could be flexibly rearranged for new meaning or greater meaning or powerful meaning to change things through the, the mere vibration of the language sounded. So I became a Latin teacher as a kind of third or fourth best. <laughs> but at, as things have turned out, I have become a linguist of, sure, of sorts. My field of investigation is the workplace, and the language I study is that of visuality, visual devices. Visual devices are the vocabulary, are the words, right? And then we put them, we array them. We put them in relationship uh, with each other, and we get these powerful interventions. And as I studied visuality, I realized this, that the day-to-day visual vocabulary, the devices that support managers and effective managers, KPI boards, dashboards, variability, is radically different from the physical vocabulary that support effective leaders. So they're both using visuality, but the devices are radically different. Effective managers, key performance indicators, dashboards, monitors, visual management. If you listen to my show a couple of of shows ago, I... I took to task the whole idea of visual management that in, in fact was a mis, a mis, mis, greatly misunderstood, greatly misunderstood as the whole of visuality instead of just a slice of it, a segment. I gauged it at 10%, a generous 10% of, of impact based on the spectrum of visual functionality that a complete uh, visual approach would encompass. So managers are using this kind of visual management approach, and it's very important for them, effective managers. But effective leaders, they're using the operation systems improvement template. They're using the X-type matrix, the, the roadmap, the war room. And why? Because the outcomes that each is responsible for are so radically different. Leading means deciding and driving. Managing means, and this is dictionary, making slight adjustments, coping. Now, you look it up. You look it up in the dictionary, and it says managing means making slight adjustments, coping. That's one definition of it. And did you know, did you know that? And also, did you know this? When I check the historical or the linguistic etymological roots of the word management, I discovered that it came from the Latin, my own Latin, for the word manus, which means hand, hand, okay? And it traveled into the French and to, and into the Italian, and it came to mean handle, respectfully, manage and managare, managare. <laughs> That's the Italian, 
And over time, this morphed into a term, manager, in French means training horses, putting horses through their paces. And so, manager, managing, entered the English language. Both these definitions are revealing management is about handling a situation, making small adjustments, dare I say coping. But in hearing that, we begin to understand what Charles Turner meant when he warned us that we cannot manage our way out of our productivity problems. Ross Perot said it this way, inventories can be managed, people must be led. Sharp difference. If we are to get the right meaning, we must first get the right word. The rest, the expectations, the behaviors, the outcomes, they follow from there quite naturally. Hmm? And aren't those important, even mission critical, when we as leaders and as managers are entrusted with the life and prosperity of a company and the people who work there? Yes, every manager has moments of genuine leadership, deciding and driving. Every leader spends much of his or her day managing, making small moves to correct a situation, but not to revolutionize it. But the overarching outcome of each of those positions is both different and vital to the company's well-being. Your company's your company needs both managers and leaders. Consider this as you contemplate the current dynamic across your managers, your executives, and yes, your supervisors as well. I will, in a later show, and quite soon, a couple of shows from now, maybe next show, give you a definition of the role of executives leader as leader and the role of supervisor as leader. And there's a bit of a twist there that I'm going to save until that time to that frames the entire uh, thought process and protocol for these these shifts and changes. I want to add some more things to our discussion so that we have in this second show a kind of array of the linking points throughout uh, the model. So we talked about the importance of leading, Veno and his very, very clever way of uh, creating alignment by simply getting the people who weren't going to change anyway to leave and realize it very early on that they weren't going to change and they didn't want to change and they were out of there. That was so clever. And then we talked about the Deming Prize and Charles uh, Turner and the difference between managing and leading and the linguistic roots of that, which I think are very important and very powerful. And the third piece I want to put into place for today is to talk about leadership and visual leadership as a doorway within the 10-doorway model that I've been developing over many, many decades now, the 10-doorway model for creating a workforce of visual thinkers. So doorway four in the 10-doorway model or array is the door that opens to visual leadership. 
which is a category of visual function that is rich in outcomes and in constructs in these tools of leading. Doorway 4 is owned by the executive leader, but managers and supervisors have a role carved out for themselves within that doorway. As I said before, in the new operational excellence, they are tasked to carry out the leader's intent. I want to also include plant managers and site managers as executive leaders. Most site managers and plant managers are geographically removed from corporate leadership. They have to make decisions. They have to lead. They have their own kingdom, and they follow the same profile. Okay, so the hierarchy, let's talk about it just a little bit more. In most organizations, there is a sharp separation between the executive and his or her direct reports. It is a solid, in many cases inflexible, hierarchy that can leave the leader in a sort of rarefied isolation with very little actual synergistic support from his staff. This is a leftover from a time when the head honcho was literally a king. (laughs) The Industrial Revolution adopted the only form of leading that it knew when that happened, and that was that of a monarch. And to some extent, maybe perhaps an equal extent, a high-level military officer where obedience was uh, required. When you combine that monarch with a high-level military officer, you only get one thing, and that is a dictator. (laughs) And many, many 20th century executives paraded around very much like dictators, and they were treated as such, and they were deferred to as such, and their decisions were edicts with any deviation punished by demotion or termination. It was pretty ugly. When the Japanese model began to make inroads into our leadership thinking, the formulation seemed to look more like a circle with its emphasis on participation and the semblance of parity that circles suggest. Hmm? Although it is strongly team-based, the Japanese leadership framework is nonetheless a hierarchy. Don't be fooled by that. Position matters. These bands of distinction between senior level, middle level, and literally lower level are quite stark and quite set. So I said before, born leaders are rare in any industry. And what visual leadership asks and answers is this challenge. Can non-specialized people learn the behaviors of gifted leadership without a charismatic personality we all seem to prefer in our leaders and without inheriting the position of leader because of family ties? Is there a way of normally skilled men and women to become leaders of distinctions? When I say yes, I say, in fact, that is the purpose of visual tools and constructs, that they help ordinarily skilled, normally skilled men and women adopt leader-like behaviors and have leader-like line of sight. 
leader-like information and they learn what to do with it through these visual constructs. We can install a leader-like set of skills, direction, and vision in, it sounds a little bit weird, but ordinary people, people like you and me. Visuality answers that question with a yes, a proven yes, in providing this set, and I'm going to name them now on the executive level, of five tools. When used, and used in sequence because sequence matters, can transform site and corporate managers managers into compelling, exacting, persuasive enterprise leaders. And I'll name them again. They're important. Uh, you know, I, I spent about 15 years trying to figure out what are the tools that make a difference. And these five have uh, surfaced very, very strongly and been tested again and again. I will be able to give you some broad protocols for um, using them, describing them certainly, defining them certainly, and using them. Uh, but they are tools that change us. The the requirements of the tools re- change the way we think of ourselves and the way that we behave in our position as leaders, first managers, and then evolving into leaders. I've seen this time and again. It's magnificent. Those five are the operation systems improvement template. You may know it as the house, the house of Toyota, but with several important additional uh, dimensions to it. The X-type matrix, which is one of my all-time favorites. (laughs) The power of limits. I love it. Metrics that drive a fully functioning war room, and the operations roadmap. Some of these interface with supervisors. But let's not go into the the weeds right now, go down those rabbit holes right now. We have plenty of time. But the mission-critical leadership message here is visual leadership, the practices and principles, ignite and cultivate and support an appetite for improvement in the leader. I call it, now I'm letting the cat out of the bag just when I said I wasn't going to, but I call it becoming a leader of improvement, becoming an improvement driver as a core competency in effective leadership. How do we identify that? How do we ensure that it is present and operationalized? I found no better way than these practices of visual leadership. I found no other way. Yet leaders on the executive level have to be joined with managers and supervisors who have the same improvement appetite. It has to happen that way if the company is going to align across functions, if you're going to succeed, if you're actually going to change and grow, first stabilize and then grow. Okay, so these tools work together. It requires a change of your job description. And when you change your job description, it is inevitable that in the process, you change yourself. I say fire the boss that you are and hire a new one. (laughs) Transform your identity, buy a new identity, get a new identity, cultivate a new identity. Very little physically will change, but your behaviors will become transformative. 
As my last little kind of anecdote, I want to talk a little bit about Winston Churchill. He's one of my great heroes. I have I'm reading for the second time now the abbreviated version of his memoirs of the Second World War. Before I die, I may read the seven unexpurgated volumes of his full uh, description, explanation, uh, journey through the Second World War. But I tell you, his memoirs abridged are riveting. They are, if they weren't, so tragic and um, horrific to contemplate what was going on in Europe in the first three years of the war, first four years, really, I would say they're like a great soap soap opera. There's just so much excitement and so much of the unexpected and so much of the dramatic in in that saga. So for me, I've said to you a moment ago that the operational essence of the leader and the leader's dilemma is this. Maybe I said this. I meant to say this. Maybe I didn't. If not, you'll hear it for the first time, and it's very important. The essence of the leader's dilemma, which we see in Churchill, is how do I say yes to the few and wait to the many? How do I decide? Because whatever I decide upon, I'm then going to have to drive. That is my job, to drive my decisions. How do I say yes to the few and wait to the many? Natural-born leaders, it's a mysterious and, in my opinion, controversial concept. An individual for whom achievement, direction, and drive seem to come together effortlessly, synergistically, as if destiny eases the way. Churchill is that icon to me. His leadership and his victory seem inevitable in hindsight. His memoirs of the Second World War, by the way, it's 700 pages in the abridged edition, shows you a man struggling to balance impossible competing priorities with the lives of nations and their societies and Western civilization hanging in the balance. We can never get close enough to disentangle the pressing realities of that moment. We simply weren't there. And leaders of Churchill's time and tradition were not self-confessional. They revealed a great deal about their accomplishments as leaders, but very little of the stuff and substance of their predicament. So it makes it hard for us to draw parallels to leadership today. We are simply glad that they prevailed. But if we poke around a bit, we can find some quirky markers that seem to reveal important truths. For example, how about this? Churchill was a natural-born visual thinker. Did you know that? Did you know, for example, that before he moved to London to conduct the war effort, Churchill worked out of his rural estate called Chartwell, about 40 miles south of London, And he turned the manor ballroom into a war office and he populated it with a standing desk for each of his war projects. 39 standing desks, 39 projects. This is called smart placement in work that makes sense. 
to separate the value fields. Each desk held only the materials relevant to the associated project, refurbishing the fleet, aerial defense of the coastline, transatlantic supply line, civil defense of London, and on and on. Churchill did not multitask. He could not. But he used structure to separate his immense responsibilities into doable, knowable subsets. He used structure to free his mind, to create margin, space in his mind, so he could better understand the details of the choices he faced. The the decisions that he, as the nation's leader, was expected to make. This is brilliant visual thinking. Brilliant. The yes to the few dilemma of leaders has been the source of intrigue and investigation for me for nearly 20 years, surrounded by the question, could visuality help? I knew that's what they had to do. That I saw. I saw great leaders do that, Churchill included. And then as my understanding of the visual paradigm matured over these years, I became well acquainted with the power of these visual principles. They help operators. Why can't they help the CEO? They help supervisors. Why not the plant manager? Engineers and managers. Why not the corporate head? Hmm? Could they assist the work of the enterprise executive as well? Yes. But not for the humdrum, hum, humdrum, humdrum reason that the executive could see his work, but rather that he could see his decisions. That's the telling difference. Not just to see his work, but to see his decisions, the ones he had to make. Visuality centers on the distinct ability to balance seeming opposites, structure, and freedom. And we embed the information of the structure and what freedom means. We embed that information into the living landscape of work through the structure of visual devices. Do you see? I find it very, very interesting. Yes, compelling natural leaders are rare in any field, regardless of industry. But to make a compelling leadership contribution to the enterprise, you need to do more than simply chase down information, monitor KPIs, submit reports, show up for meetings, show up for meetings, show up for meetings. You need to change your job description and in the process change yourself. This is what I suggest to you. This is what I have found. And this is creating the platform for our further discussions that will become more and more specific. Fire the boss that you are and hire a new one. Transform your identity. Identities shift only when we see and understand ourselves differently and therefore behave differently. This is a behavioral model and visuality is uniquely, uniquely uh, qualified Uh, what's the word, uniquely, not skilled, uniquely qualified, I'll go with that, to create behavioral change by making changes in structure. It's still going to be eye-driven. There is still the freedom of the eye to make those midnight decisions, to look 
deeply and darkly into the information and then read its messages and know what your choices are and make it. Venus Srinivasan did it. I mean, how extraordinarily revolutionary that was for a Brahmin himself to put the Brahmins around him to the test because he wanted growth, he wanted change, he wanted transformation, and he knew he had to do it through people, and he knew he had many battles to fight. But why why fight the battle of if, if we're going to do it? No, we are going to do it, so let's get on with it. Hmm? Managing versus leading. Very important, an incredibly important distinction. I think these are all matters. If you are a manager right now, if you are a leader right now, for you to consider, if you are a leader right now, grow more of you, grow more of them. We need more leaders. If you are a manager now, think about expanding your role, your definition, your behaviors, and your impact. You don't have to give up one. You just have to shift and become something else as well. Hmm? It's a balance point. I've really enjoyed sharing this with you today. I hope I've done a good job. I hope these pieces are making sense to you as the second show in our series of visual leadership. Next week, I will talk more about becoming a leader of improvement, where that came from, where that notion came from. It was another specific event in my life and how that plays out in the two roles, executive leader and supervisory leader. We're putting managers in with the supervisors. Okay? We will look at that shift. We'll look at that definition. We'll look at that shift. I love sharing what I've learned with you. I hope that you uh, find it useful and productive. And right now I have to sign off because I'm at the end of my minutes. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth wishing you good visual thinking, great visual leadership, and an exceedingly splendid visual journey. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.